It's Thursday, March 31st. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Many people who left their jobs during the Great Resignation are having regrets. About 20% of those that left didn't think it was a good idea after all, and many aren't even planning to stay very long in their new positions. Reasons why they aren't happy range from the new role being different from what they expected, or even missing the culture of their old job. Paul Davidson, economics and jobs reporter at USA Today, joins us for more. Next, according to the UN, an estimated 4 million Ukrainians have fled the country, mostly to nearby countries, especially Poland, which has taken in about 2.4 million people. Most of them have been women and children because of a law barring men of fighting age from leaving. Joanna Sugden, reporter for The Wall Street Journal, joins us for how the number of those fleeing is larger than they first predicted. Finally, the battle for your toilet paper is on. Due to the scarcity of traditional toilet paper during the pandemic, many people tried alternatives such as recycled toilet paper and paper made out of bamboo. Now, these alternative companies are trying to maintain the momentum they have gained. Daniela Sertori Cortina, consumer goods reporter at Bloomberg News, joins us for how they're marketing to you, making sure you know it's sustainable and most importantly, soft. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. At the same time, they're maybe a little burnt out from working hard at their current job in their pandemic, and so they switched. But, uh, yeah, when you do things very quickly sometimes, it doesn't always work out, and, and that seems to be what this survey is showing. Joining us now is Paul Davidson, economics and jobs reporter at USA Today. Thanks for joining us, Paul. Sure. Thank you. Well, let's talk about the great resignation, all these people quitting throughout the pandemic, looking for, you know, a, a lot of different things, either being able to work remotely, better work-life balance, higher pay, better working conditions, all this stuff prompted mm-hmm. a lot of people to leave their jobs. Until now, a lot of the stories that we had been hearing were all very positive type things, people moving on to bigger, better things. But this is kind of the thing I was waiting for because you knew that a lot of people probably had regrets. And now a new poll is showing that a lot of people uh, that did quit their jobs during this time are regretting it or they're just not happy with the new position that they have. So, Paul, tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, I mean, it was this great phenomenon. Every month you had about 4 million or so people leaving their jobs, mostly to switch to other jobs. No doubt a lot of people who did quit are happy or or switch jobs or satisfied, but we decided to survey it, and Harris did a survey for us. And about one in five people regret either quitting their job and a, a similar percentage, a similar share regret starting their new job. But then if you dig a little deeper and and when they asked them, are you satisfied enough with your job to stay in it long term or just to stay in your job, just 26% of those job switchers said they wanted to stay in their job, and a third are already looking for a new position. So in one way or another, you know, it seems like most of of the people who, who quit or switch jobs are, are not really content. You know, about 20% out and out regret it. But others, you know, aren't really content in their new jobs. So, yeah, you had sort of this kind of frenzy. I mean, driven by the pandemic and the worker shortages that the pandemic spawned, you know, lots of job openings. People really, employers really struggle to find workers. And so there's a plethora of jobs out there enticing a lot of people. A lot of people saw higher wages, largely higher wages, and just, you know, new and different opportunities. They were being wooed and courted by new employers and, uh, you know, very exciting. 
you know, and in the same time, they're maybe a little burnt out from working hard at their current job in the pandemic. And so they switched. But, uh, yeah, when you do things very quickly, sometimes it doesn't always work out. And, and that seems to be what this survey is showing. Through some of these other stats that we got through this, it really seems like just the change really wasn't the right thing for them. So 30% said the new role was different from when they expected when they got there. 24% missed the culture of the previous job. So, you know, kind of, you might've been kind of happy, maybe left in a hurry or something for something bigger and better. And then, man, I really miss the people there or, or how things operated. So that's what a lot of people were experiencing. Some people said they were just focusing too much on the money. And when they got yeah. there, it wasn't what they expected. Yeah, that's exactly right. 24%, nearly about a quarter, so they didn't really thoroughly evaluate the pros and cons. Like you say, about a quarter missed the culture. Uh, 36% said they weren't really happy with the work-life balance at the new job. So, yeah, I, I think a lot of it, it seems to have to do with the speed with which it all happened. I mean, you know, you have companies, in many cases, desperate to hire workers. I mean, a lot of them have been looking for months because of these worker shortages. And so, you know, what some staffing people are telling me is that, you know, A, they're trying to get somebody in quickly. And, you know, they may, in some cases, overstate what exactly the new job is going to be like. They may promise certain hours, very flexible, very reasonable nine to five hours, and then it may be something different. They may overstate the sort of content of the job, exactly what they'll be doing, making it sound like it's a more creative role when in fact it's maybe more logistical or administrative. So, you know, it was a very fast process in a lot of cases. And so, yeah, the, the people who switched may be switching because they have sort of one thing in mind that's really exciting them. It, it could be the wage, a uh, higher wage when, when they haven't had a raise in a long time. Uh, in some cases, you know, people, a lot of people really wanted to stay uh, work remotely. You know, they knew they were going to work remotely. I mean, they did work remotely during the pandemic, but then they, in a lot of cases, got called back to the office right. at least for some days a week, or they knew they were going to get called back. So they just had it in their mind. They didn't want to <laughs> go back to an office. They liked working from home. This one was also interesting, too, because a lot of people just kind of rage quit. They just said, hey, I'm done with this. I'm going to leave. But 41% of those people tried to get their job back. Right. That was a survey that another company did. Yeah, I mean, you think about certainly some lower paid workers in, in what's considered these frontline industries, restaurants, retail. They're working really hard because a lot of their colleagues aren't working for whatever reason. There they're, they're are worker shortages. So they're like working overtime, you know, getting a little burned out. In some cases, they don't feel like they were appreciated. And, uh, yeah, a lot of people are kind of quitting their rage. And, um, again, a quick move. And maybe they again took another job. And, uh, again, may, may not have fully evaluated the ramifications of maybe just quitting and, and then not having income or quitting for another job. But, you know, they really didn't think through the other job yeah. in terms of the lifestyle, the working conditions, uh, the benefits. So, yeah, it's sort of reality is setting in. Paul Davidson, economics and jobs reporter at USA Today. Thank you very much for joining us. Sure. Thanks for having me. We will welcome everyone who needs help. But one thing has to be said, we are at capacity because uh, the Ukrainians who came to Warsaw uh, now reside at, people, at people's homes. Uh, and uh, of course, there is a limit of what we can do. Joining us now is Joanna Sugden, 
reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Joanna. Thanks for having me. Well, the uh, war in Ukraine is ongoing still. There was supposed to be some type of uh, de-escalation near Kiev by Russian forces. It doesn't seem like that's happening. The fighting there continues. And what we're seeing right now from the UN is that we're hearing that 4 million refugees have now fled Ukraine. So this number, we had been seeing the number go up by a lot, obviously, but this number now, 4 million, already exceeds what they thought was going to happen throughout the entirety of the war that was going on. They thought that, you know, it'd be around this much, but it's surpassing that 10 million people inside of Ukraine have been uprooted from their homes, maybe haven't fled the company, but just have had to leave their homes. So this uh, refugee crisis continues. So Joanna, tell us a little bit more about what we're seeing there. Yeah, absolutely. It is um, a humanitarian crisis, the scale of which has not been seen since World War II in Europe. And in fact, that 10.5 million people who've been uprooted either within Ukraine or being forced abroad. So that includes the 4 million that we know about today who, who have actually had to leave the country as refugees. And then a further, um, the remainder of that 10.5 million are internally displaced people. And yeah, the situation, really the humanitarian situation is of a scale which we haven't seen before and is um, fast ex- was fast accelerating at the very outset of the war. And even at that stage, the UN was saying that they expected 4 million um, in total. And they, they thought that that would be an outsized estimate. But um, in fact, they've already reached it and we're, we're five weeks in. So the pace does look to be slowing somewhat because most men of fighting age are not allowed to leave the country. So the refugees that we're seeing across the border are mainly women and children. They're mainly Ukrainian. And what the UN have said today in a survey that they've done of refugees who've gone to Poland, the vast majority of refugees have arrived initially in Poland, which borders Ukraine. Refugees are saying 40% of them want to go home. They're very keen for this war to be over. A further 30% are not sure what they're going to do now. They, they, their situation is so up in the air and they, they're they suffering from PTSD and they're just not sure what to do next. And then right. another 20% are, are saying that they want to go in to a different country where perhaps they have family or other ties. Poland has taken about 2.4 million people that have arrived there. They're also mm. going to Hungary, Moldova, Slovakia, Romania. But Poland has been taking the most amount of people. And and the interesting thing there that's going on is they don't really have uh, refugee camps, let's say. They're relying on the Polish people instead, you know, relatives, mm. friends, volunteers to mm. take the Ukrainians in. Yeah, absolutely. They're um, very much relying on the goodwill of the Polish people who do see the vast majority of cases, see the Ukrainian people as their brothers and sisters, um, you know, their, their fellow Slavs and it's testing the limits even of that hospitality, I think, um, in terms of resources and um, where all these people can stay and the capacity of the country to absorb them. And there's also people that are returning to Ukraine. Uh, You mentioned in the article some 550,000 mostly men have returned back to, to fight. And we've seen the Ukrainian people band together in this way, but some of them are coming back for this, uh, uh, this purpose. That's right. We spoke to the um, border guard, the Ukrainian border guard today, and he said, although they don't, no one's asked at the border why they're coming back, half a million people have done so and they've expressed 
to border guards. He was saying their desire to return and help defend their country. They they were perhaps abroad overseas living, you know, expats, and they saw what was happening and they couldn't stay away, um, as it was what he said um, to us. And so, yeah, the, the tide is not just one way that's it's, that is a huge number of people in itself but the exodus overall means that in a population of about 43 million before the war we're now we've now seen a, we're close to one in ten yeah. of those have been forced out of the country by this and invasion you know, the, you know obviously refugee crisis humanitarian crisis we talk about it in these terms because it's happening right now in the immediate but these are all very long-term things for the european union they're granting ukrainian refugees the right to live and work in the block for up to three years. I mean, so this is a long-term thing that they're preparing for. That's right, yeah. It won't be over quickly, as we've seen. I think the, the Ukrainians are definitely um, digging in for the longer-term fight, and um, those who've had to leave, as you said, that some of their homes have been obliterated, so they're not going back anytime soon. So the, um, the capacity of uh, the EU to absorb these people and to provide funding for them. And I think that there's um, a move by governments to get the EU to to fund some medical provision for these people um, because the country's on their own. Yeah. You know, it, it really tests their ability to provide. Joanna Sugden, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And another company actually um, started offering like bulk orders of 96 rolls and that helped cut the number of deliveries. So they've had to do a lot of things to work around the ages to lower the cost. Joining us now is Daniela Sartori Cortina, consumer goods reporter at Bloomberg News. Thanks for joining us, Daniela. Of course, anytime. Well, let's talk about everybody's favorite thing, toilet paper. Obviously, it got a, a huge bump because of the pandemic when everybody was panic buying. And this is kind of uh, actually very much related to that right now. The battle to be the next big toilet paper is on right now. We are seeing a lot of brands that are dealing in bamboo and dealing in recycled paper. And, uh, you know, they're trying to make a dent in uh, the stronghold that all these other companies have right now. And going back to the pandemic, right, there was toilet paper was out everywhere. So a lot of people were experimenting with these other brands. So now it's uh, seeing, you know, now that the pandemic's fading, if they can, you know, maintain that foothold. So, Daniela, tell us a little bit more about this. As you were mentioning, during the pandemic, you know, there were a lot of panicked buyers when they faced empty shelves. And so they kind of bought anything that was available, stuff like from recycled paper, from bamboo. And what was interesting was that they found that some of these alternatives were actually soft, um, not necessarily like perhaps the rough recycled uh, toilet paper that they have used in offices or public restrooms. And this is important because that's the baseline for most U.S. consumers. Like your toilet paper has to be soft. So the thing is, that really can be a game changer in a category that has been pretty stable and boring, to put it that way. And so the question now is whether these brands are going to be able to, you know, hold on to these gains. You know, toilet paper overall, like toilet paper sales have been going down, you know, and, you know, toilet paper seen as sustainable has gone down even more. But, you know, this doesn't really capture uh, some of the some of the information from companies that sell directly to consumers. But these companies are doing way more than just investing in softness. You know, they have like very cheeky marketing. They have, you know, colorful packaging. And so they have been working for a few years and they will continue to be working on how to keep that consumer after that pandemic spike is done. 
the key is softness. You know, you can see it in marketing for regular toilet paper, right? They add lotion to it. They uh, add lavender to it, uh, all this other stuff. And so this is kind of the thing that these new companies have had to battle with through marketing and then through the product themselves. You know, a lot of people are increasingly using bamboo because they can almost get to the softness of regular toilet paper. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, softness is very, very subjective, of course. And so, you know, different consumers will have different preferences. But, you know, we talked to some companies that actually went through a half dozen versions of their product. Another company, I think, mentioned that they went through 13 versions of their product or something like that to keep iterating and making sure that the materials they were using, the process they were using, uh, actually met that consumer expectation of softness. So, you know, they're kind of like inching closer to that. And it's interesting because, you know, when you compare it to, to recycled, basically, you know, paper's made of fibers, uh, and then you need like pulp to make toilet paper. But, you know, the fibers for recycled toilet paper kind of get damaged during the recycling process. And so they just don't have the same length that a virgin fiber, quote unquote, has. The thing is, bamboo is a virgin fiber, right? It just doesn't come from a tree. So it can lend itself to making softer toilet paper. Now, this is going into kind of like the nerd zone of toilet <laughs> paper. But it was interesting for me to learn that it's not just a matter of picking a different material. There's a lot of iteration and just kind of innovation that goes into matching that basic quality that uh, people right. expect. You know, a lot of the marketing that is done in this is talks about sustainability. So uh, you mentioned the, you know, the virgin fibers of a brand new tree, you know, and there a lot of their marketing. They're saying, well, you know, this is we're not cutting down trees to to do this anymore. So there's that part of it. And then there's also the question of cost. I think for bamboo toilet paper, at least they're starting to narrow that gap. But some of these other things are a little more expensive. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you hit on an important point is that if you talk to all these brands, they all will talk about sustainability and how sustainability was an important part of their origin story. But I think they have, uh, you know, from what I talked to them, they have learned that they can't just sell sustainability. They have to sell quality and they have to meet the cost that people expect. You know, one founder told me like this is a commodity market. People are very price sensitive when it comes to toilet paper. And so they've done some kind of interesting stuff to try to narrow the cost, which is, you know, one of them actually furl these rolls tighter. And so that means that they can fit more tissue into a roll and they can reduce shipping costs, which is the opposite of what you see in traditional toilet paper, right? Like you get the mega roll. Um, and so people think that, you know, mega means value, but these companies are trying to sell them on the opposite. And another company actually um, started offering like bulk orders of 96 rolls and that helped cut the number of deliveries. So they've had to do a lot of things to work around the ages to lower the cost. Because at the end of the day, a lot of people will say, yes, we will buy a more sustainable product. And if you ask these companies, sustainability is a very, very important part of their story. But they know that that is only going to get so many people. Like one of the founders told me, they knew they had to match the quality of traditional toilet paper because otherwise they would struggle to get beyond what they call the crunchy hippies. So that's what's happening. <laughs> Daniela Sartori Cortina, consumer goods reporter at Bloomberg News. Thank you very much for joining us. Anytime. It's a pleasure. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your daily dive.